I, I won't lie to you, this doing this series has given me so much hope and so, something to focus on when I needed to focus on something. And the, the stories from people on this series have just been, you know, I've, I've been lucky in the sense that I'm asking the questions and so I'm, I'm silent most of the time, but I, I'm, I won't lie to you, I've cried and I've got upset and I've been glad that I haven't been the one talking at that time, you know. Um, it's been so raw and real. This is Deep in the Weeds and I'm Danny Valland. This is the first time that you've heard me introduce this podcast because I've stolen it from Anthony Huckstep who started Deep in the Weeds just a couple of months ago and has rolled along with 25 episodes. I was, I think, on episode 11 or 12, somewhere in the middle there, and um, Anthony's asked me to come back and interview him for the final episode of Series 1. There's the final episode of Series 1 because there is going to be a Series 2 because we're certainly not out of the woods. So Huck, he's a food writer, a food communicator, one of um, Australia's best known and most respected food journalists. And it's been amazing to hear him interview some of the Australian food industry's most interesting, uh, most expressive, and I guess most thoughtful players over the past couple of months. But it is definitely time to turn the tables and dig into what's been motivating him, how he's been feeling, and where he thinks things might be going. So, Huck, welcome to your own podcast. <laughs> wow, it's weird. You know, Danny, I've never been so nervous, I think, in my life. I've This morning I've just not been able to concentrate. I've usually got my hands on the wheel of this thing and um, the safety of that. And um, I don't know what's going to happen, but um, I'm sure it's going to be fun. Well, I hope it is. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting to have my hands on the wheel it, I have to say I'm a fan of the podcast and when you asked me to go on it, I was really honoured and delighted. And, um, yeah, so when you asked me to interview you, I, yeah, it, was, it, it really means a lot. So thank you for trusting me. I hope your trust isn't misplaced. Oh, I doubt it will be. And, and you were brilliant and we had a great chat. And, um, yeah, it was, it was just an immediate like response, it was obvious. My my wife actually suggested this idea. I I certainly didn't put myself forward um, to be interviewed, but I think um, I don't I don't think there's anyone that could have done it other than you, given what you've been doing, um, you know, and and also what Rob and I have been doing uh, in the sort of journalism space, void of having actual jobs ourselves. Yes, well, in some ways, we're wandering the woods together in that regard. So, Huck, you've started this podcast most times by asking people to talk about how the pandemic snuck up on them. So I would love you to share your experience. How did it, how did it all roll out for you? Yeah, wow, that just gave me a little bit of a shiver because it's, it's quite confronting, that question, isn't it? And to receive it is different to, do, to ask it. Um, you know, that, that week that sort of everything changed pretty dramatically, you know, and the restaurant industry collapsed, you know, where all of the restrictions changed quite rapidly from day to day. And, um, you know, by Sunday on the 23rd, basically restaurants were closed, you know, apart from takeaway. Um, that actual week for me was, was good and bad. It was, it was, it was a really weird week. Um, you know, 
that week, you know, within a matter of 24 hours or 48 hours, I pretty much lost all of my work, you know, which is not ideal when you're a father and, um, you know, you've got to provide for your family. Having said that, I wrote an article about what was happening um, for Delicious Magazine and the impact that it was having on the industry. And the response that I received from that article, it it put things uh, career-wise in perspective. <laughs> it, uh, Tell me what you mean. What, what, what stuff was in your article? Well, it was, it was kind of a, it was, so to give some context for people, like I spent a lot of my career as editor of a food journal, which was for industry, writing about producers and chefs. And so I, I do have quite a strong connection with the industry in that sense. And then I moved to the dark side to be a critic and a, a lot of my journalism was for consumers. And I guess when that happened, so many people in the industry reached out to me. Um, it almost felt like, you know, uh, they were pushing me to be a voice. Um, the, the the response was so strong, you know, kind of like when you're you're in school and you're about to play do PE and play soccer, and no one really wants to be the captain, and somebody at the back pushes you in the back, and you get pushed forward, and the teacher says, "Okay, so it's you." And it was that sort of feeling, like this big push from behind. And I and it wasn't that I was unwilling though; it was it just felt. It felt like I could do something and I guess in a way eventually Rob and I did and and the the journey of the podcast has been extraordinary. What is that feeling like when you're pushed, you're pushed, you're not, it wasn't something that you strategized or pre-planned so you, you find yourself in a role, what what does that feel like? I, I actually needed it I think and, I, and I've, I've loved it and I and, and I guess I've always thought that I've had a stronger connection to the industry than perhaps a lot of food media. And I guess I've, my career has been a bit different in that context. And, you know, I guess to sort of paint a picture that this pandemic for, for me personally and the way that it feels, and I, I know it's catastrophic on the planet and the, it, the industry has fallen apart. And, you know, I've, I've been, you know, trying to get work and, you know, and thankfully I have just recently, um, but it's actually been fairly easy for us in just personally, our family. Um, you know, it's, we live in Canberra and that's, you know, there's only been 107 cases or something. And so you certainly don't feel the pandemic like you do in Sydney or Melbourne and certainly not obviously in like Italy or Spain or the US and, the, you know, what's going on over there. And, and for us more recently, the bushfires actually had felt uh, we felt that a lot more as a, as a family. And um, we have two uh, young children, uh, twins, and they're two, two years old. You know, and for us, the bushfires, uh, I think Canberra, there was a seven-day seven period that Canberra had uh, the worst air quality on the planet for uh, like four of that seven days. And, and for us, that was a lot more frightening just as a personal journey as a family. Um, and I mean, I should probably give context to that. And it's not really something that I've ever spoken publicly about, but yeah, you know, our daughters are 
pretty amazing. But, you know, they have uh, chronic lung disorder, so air quality is an issue when, you know, it's an issue for everyone, which was, was during the bushfires. So that was kind of tense for us, you know, and, and the reason they have that, you know, I mean, they're, they're actually healthy, normal children, but they arrived pretty early in the scheme of things, you know, and, you know, three years ago, you know, our lives sort of changed. They arrived at 26 weeks and were very, very small and spent four months in hospital at the beginning of their lives. And obviously we spent that time with them. And, you know, it's, I think of the situation that we're in now and, you know, it feels easy compared to the sort of trauma that we went through back then. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, adversity always changes you and, I mean, nothing, well, I won't say nothing, but certainly becoming a parent is life-changing no matter what the circumstances. But it sounds like the way that you fell or leapt or were um, dragged into it was different to um, how you might have imagined it was going to be. And I think, yeah, I think the bushfires and, and the smoke, for me, that powerless that you feel powerlessness that I felt as a parent where it's like you mean I can't guarantee that my kids have got clean air to breathe like the it's breathing is so fundamental and that 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 would be that basic way of you know protecting or enabling life was um yeah that was we were cut off from that for a while and I know it was much worse in Canberra than it was in Melbourne so yeah that's that's uh very confronting so and I think it I did feel a little bit the same with um with pandemic here where you just feel like you, your kids can't go out, they can't see their friends, they can't touch anything. And I think my kids are teenagers, so they're, they like roaming around. I think, I guess, two-year-olds at least, they allow you to circumscribe their world to, to a greater degree. But it's, um yeah, super confronting. Well, yeah, and I guess to give context to sort of now, I, I think, yeah, I didn't know I was going to bring what I have, I'll bring it up today. But to give context, the last three years, the clarity of what's important in life has never been more evident in our lives. So, you know, without sort of going back over that sort of story with what happened with our family, you know, we actually, during that process, realised pretty quickly, and and my wife is like an incredibly strong woman, she's amazing. Um, We realised that when you're dealing with trauma, um, you can't let the what-ifs get to you. So... If you deal with the immediacy of the issue and um, and that day is an okay day, then it's an okay day. If you let what ifs, because what ifs actually most of the time never happen. And so you sort of uh, realise soon enough who matters and what matters and just dealing with what's actually in front of you. And when you deal with what's in front of you, the challenge doesn't seem as big and the support seems bigger than you thought. So I guess, you know, to give, you know, that first week, the first time I left the hospital was to uh, interview Gordon Ramsay, you know, and I still remember getting in that cab and the cabbie had um, Jackie O and Kyle uh, Sandlands on. And I remember just sitting there thinking, why do people listen to this bullshit? You know, it's just rubbish, you know. Um, you know, not that we don't need some inane sort of stuff to, you know, help us get by, but just in the context of that scenario, I just 
felt, you know, this, you know, we let ourselves sort of get caught up in just silliness like gossip and celebrity gossip and all this sort of stuff. Hmm. Well, I guess what you're talking about is it's perspective, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, and the reason that I did go and interview Ramsey is because a year earlier, while I was in the air flying over to the UK to interview him for something else, you know, his family had a personal uh, situation where his wife had a miscarriage and he cancelled all media, but he still caught up with me and, and we, we had the chat and, you know, we've known each other for a few years. And um, so I felt sort of obliged to do that. And funnily enough, when I got there to interview him, you know, he's got twins and they were born early and we actually had a coffee and a chat for 20 minutes before we did any of the sort of formal media sort of stuff. And that really sort of was nice for me to sort of have someone that had experienced something such early on in that for us. But in the context of this pandemic, you know, in that time I was going to review restaurants sitting there, does it really thinking, does it really matter that the waiter's forgotten my water or that there's a stain on this menu or that this chicken's slightly overcooked when, you know, I've got my daughters in hospital and it really put a different perspective on my career as a, a food critic and journalist. And, and, and since then, I've always had question marks over my role in the food media and the changing landscape of food media in Australia. And um, certainly when this pandemic happened, it was a chance to perhaps um, go down the track that I think it needs to. So is that track some a bit more where people are standing shoulder to shoulder and, and looking out across a landscape than, than facing off? Yeah, I think there's that. I think there's definitely that. And I and look, we've got great both of us have great friends in food media and they're wonderful people and they're just carving out careers and you know, but I think the discussion in food and certainly journalism has changed so much that you know, I mean I don't know how many I mean, I've been guilty of it. I don't know if I can write another article about the top five milkshakes with a fucking donut on top, you know, like that sort of food media is just really fucking depressing. Um you know, like I would my my greatest joy is to go on a prawn boat for twenty four hours and then try and tell that story, or um, you know, spend some time in the kitchen with a team and see what actually goes on behind the scenes and how they deliver the magic in a restaurant. Or you know, this the stories of people and is far more interesting to me than you know how many good hot dogs Sydney has or something. Well, I think as a writer, you know, what what I try to do is you really listen to someone's story or you observe someone living their story and you try to honour it and express it in a way that they see themselves reflected. You know, like it's a real um, a real honesty and a sort of, yeah, a sparse honesty where you just use the words that you really need to, to say it. And I think... Yeah, you give give each word its weight and let the story just unfurl. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, it's different. It's I guess to feel to try to honour someone in that way or someone's story or you know even a piece of produce or, or the project of a restaurant. You, you, I just I just think you don't feel it as much if you're on high if you've got that 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 um, old school critic perspective. Um, I think, yeah, I think this is maybe. Yeah, I agree. 
and and it's really hard. It's a challenge, isn't it, to to actually honor their story? Like, like you, I know, I know, like we've spoken about it. Like, you just get like people's stories are extraordinary, and we don't hear about them, you know. And trying to put that onto paper in you know, 500 words or a thousand words feels like you're dishonoring them sometimes because their story is so amazing. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it's just about finding that, that thread or that, that, that glimmer that you can, you can, you can speak of or speak to in a really economical way. Um, absolutely. And I guess just be really humble about it. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's, in, it's very interesting. The old school critic mindset or, or posture, I think, is it it was shaky, but I feel like this pandemic has just really just given the old statue a bit of a push and it's crumbled down and we can we can rebuild it somehow differently and we can, you know, we can rebuild it together. We are I'm, I'm still trying to put the you know, pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together of what I'm gonna do on the other side of this. I mean I won't lie to you. This doing this series has given me so much hope and so something to focus on when I needed to focus on something. Um, and the, you know, the the stories from people on this series have just been, you know, I've I've been lucky in the sense that I'm asking the questions and so I'm I'm silent most of the time. But I'm, I won't lie to you. I've cried and I've got upset and I've been glad that I haven't been the one talking at that time. You know, um, it's been so raw and real. Well, I think why it's been so powerful, it's it's resonated so much with people because you've given people that space and, and yeah, you've you've just, and you've been in it. Like I, I think anyone that's listened could um, feel your empathy and, yeah, that you're, you're, yeah, yeah, you're helping shepherd people through their stories. It's not, uh, there's no interrogation and, yeah, there's no. I guess you weren't trying to be objective. You were just giving people space to tell their stories. Yeah, and I. Yeah. Has it been a burden for you to hear all hear all that? Like you know, people have gone through super hard times, and there's so much uncertainty and bewilderment. You know, has that been hard for you to carry? No, it's been emotional, but it hasn't been hard to carry. It's been a joy to carry, and that I don't know. That's a weird word to use, but. Um, you know, I've had friends reach out to me and say the same things like, are you actually, you know, you're doing amazing things and letting people tell their stories and, but are you looking after yourself? And, you know, and that's very appreciated from great friends because we all need that sort of stuff. Um, but I haven't felt a burden. I've, I've been energized. I've been wanting to hear the stories, you know, like I listen to these podcasts you know, I don't like listening to my own voice, but I, you know, I take the dogs for a walk and I listen to episodes because, and I re-listen to them because people just give me so much hope and have filled something quite nourishing in my soul that, you know, made me realise um, what my connection is to the industry, um, how deep it is and how amazing it is. You know, we, we've got an extraordinary food industry here and, the people within it are in a shitstorm, and it isn't going to get easier for a while. You know, we've, it's going to be hard, but you know, there is there is a chance to make that industry better. 
I mean, there's a chance to make the food industry, food media industry better as well, and, and just generally our lives better if we're all willing. After the break, well, actually, I have no idea what's after the break because Danny hasn't asked me a question yet. This episode of the Deep in the Weeds podcast is brought to you by Peace of Eden Riesling from the St. John's Road Winery in the Barossa Valley. Once you've met the people, met the growers, met the winemakers, you, you see a, a sort of common thread among among the place and there's that community and the, the, the resilience uh, of the growers and the you know the courage of the growers. And, and, and then we all strive for a bit of a, a relaxing time. I mean, to go up to, to Eden Valley is always uh, always nice to look out up on top of Mengler's Hill and look out over the Barossa as the sun goes down is, is, is pretty special. That's James Leanett, winemaker of St John's Road Winery in the Barossa Valley, who also told us about the origins of Peace of Eden. Peace of Eden refers obviously to uh, the Eden Valley, which is a little bit of a paradise up there. It's, um, it's, it's very quiet and peaceful and serene. It rains a bit more up there, so we like to think of it as, uh, you know, things things happen a little slower up there. Everything everything takes its time, and uh, the riesling really works well up there. It's on it's on nice granite soil, and so you know, it develops these beautiful citrusy characters with a nice clean acidity. Yeah, a really nice delicate style riesling from the Eden Valley. Piece of Eden from St John's Road Winery in the Barossa Valley. For more information, go to stjohnsroad.com. Okay, so let's let's go back a little bit. What do you think is so great about our food industry? I guess it's, I mean, I view it as that, you know, we're kind of a microcosm of the whole globe in the sense that Australia, you know, apart from our Indigenous community, which, you know, I think we still need to, fully embrace and understand and I think from a society perspective we, we just can't seem to get our heads around that which is frustrating um you know everyone has come from somewhere else in some you know in some way whether it's this generation the previous generation the one before it you know we're we've all got long histories as migrants and our food culture is represented by that you know you can see the the waves of migration patterns influencing the cuisines that come to fruition in this country excuse me and um it's and it's just bloody amazing you know and it like you can eat like the produce here is extraordinary our producers are extraordinary the standards that they set and the standards that they're obliged to set um both from a sustainability perspective and also um culinary and quality perspective is amazing you know and it just annoys the hell out of me that a government can, you know, reject, um, you know, international workers on visas when, you know, they make up a large proportion of our population. They're paying taxes. They're um, contributing. They're um, enhancing our culinary landscape. And, you know, we're all bloody migrants, you know, like, <laughs> like, and to think otherwise is just ludicrous, you know. I, and and I just, you know, when the when the industry opens up again, you know, we talk about skills shortages pre- before this. Like, if we don't have those workers, you know, it's going to be even tougher for the industry. And I guess 
you know, I got, I, you know, previously to having children, I've traveled quite a lot for my job overseas and eaten in amazing countries, but gee, it's nice to come home and realize how good our restaurants are. Yeah. I think it, it is pretty special here and we're going to have a really good chance to appreciate it, aren't we? Because we're not going to be traveling elsewhere for a while. So it's good that it's good. (laughs) That is true. That's a bloody good argument to to get out there and and, and support them, isn't it? Totally, yeah. Um, So what about the food media? Like what can you see? uh, How would you describe the way it's been and, and the way you think that it might change? Well, I guess there's a couple of aspects to it. You know, one is that media in general, you know, took a pretty big hit in the last decade and it's been difficult. Um, You know, it's not easy to make money online as a media platform and print, obviously, you know, that was difficult. So in that sense, everyone's just scrambling to make sure that, you know, they can produce a product that, you know, the people want and, you know, that can be paid for and that people can be earn money and, you know, it's, it gets supported without collapsing. And I guess there's that, that aspect of it. And so in that regard, I understand why a lot of the food media, particularly consumer press is, um, is light, I guess it's, it's light. it's, um, you know, and there's some extraordinary food writers in this country, like that's, you know, and, and people working on these magazines and, um, you know, and whether it's the appetite of consumers, whether they, they only want to sort of dip their toes in a little bit or um, whether it's, you know, meeting, making sure that, you know, they remain viable. I think it's a combination of all those things. The discussion of food in this country certainly is not as in-depth as perhaps I would enjoy. Um, and, you know, not everyone wants to, you know, dive into the deep blue like I do, but um, certainly as a writer, I like that. And, it's funny, you know, like I've written for so many magazines and um, obviously a lot of food titles, but in recent years, the longest form of journalism that I've written is for magazines that are outside the category that are luxury magazines or something. And they want a six or seven page feature on tuna farming or the history of Botaga or, you know, these sort of things. And I, and I just love sinking my teeth into that sort of stuff. And it's, um, often the food magazines that sort of don't want to go as in-depth as that, which I find strange. Yeah. It's funny, the luxury magazines give you, give you the luxury of, of word length and really digging into a topic, but I don't know how many luxury magazines are going to be um, refloating after this. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I guess in this podcast you have been able to go pretty deep, haven't you? And you've, you've had the luxury of it being your own platform so you could really do what you wanted and 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 yeah really let people tell their stories and, and help them shape them yeah i know i guess that's pretty bloody dangerous as well um because you know like we didn't actually know what this series was going to be and you know um rob rob lock who is the producer and an incredible individual and you know he's hovering around in the background here listening to us and he'll hate me saying this sort of stuff but he's he is a genius and, you know, th- this was, you know, for basically his idea in a, in a way. You know, we were working on a project um, which will see light actually um, pretty soon, which is quite exciting, um, but that got paused 
um, because of the pandemic for a little while. And we were having a chat and we were talking about that article that I'd, I had written that had such an impact. And and Rob just said, we should just do it as a podcast. Like, let's just do it right now. Like, let's just get onto it. And And this is an opportunity to, you know, give voice to people who need it. And, you know, like this is the moment, you know, and it's weird. It, it kind of felt like it was, you know, and I mean, and to be fair, I mean, it's become far more successful than I think either of us thought. Um, and we didn't know what it was going to be. We just sort of thought, well, okay, what do we do? And and truly, I mean, you've been interviewed. I, ran, I, I think I rang you that morning and said, do you want to be on? And then three hours later we were recording and you had no idea what I was going to ask you. Um, and we did that with Neil Perry and I just said, can we have a chat? And he said, yep. And I kind of didn't know what I was going to ask him. He didn't know what I was, I was going to ask him and it just sort of happened. And I think um, the series has just been therapy, certainly for me. And um, Well, it felt like a lifeline, you know, when it started for me. It was, it was, I felt like I'd been waiting for it to happen and then suddenly it was there and thank goodness it was because this is what I needed. And I think it's really been, um, it's, it's given people a real, collective feeling uh and you know i haven't i've known some of the people that you've spoken to i haven't known all of them but it's felt like you know these people are all part of my food family now and i'm sure that's what it feels like for for so many people listening um so how did you decide who to talk to yeah you know that that's really tough because to be honest we've just been (laughs) making it up as we go um you know and just you know and there's actually and i apologize to anyone out there and there's quite a few of you and I'm thinking of you right now that I've said, you know, we're going to get you on and I want you to tell you your stuff, your story. And then, you know, like there's actually been so many of them that, you know, we just, you just can't do it, you know, and um, unless, you know, we recorded five episodes a day or something, you know, like, and that's the scary thing about this situation is there's so many stories and it hasn't actually been difficult to find a story. It's just kind of, lining someone up because everyone's got something to say, you know, um, give, because the scale of it is so epic. Um, and I guess sort of along the way, we've sort of been mindful, I get in some ways that, you know, look, we need to get another producer on, or, you know, we need to get a perspective of a sommelier and, um, you know, like then it was kind of like, we need to get Danny on because like she's doing extraordinary things. And so there is, there are instances where we go, where we realize, okay, that person, we need to speak to that person. Um, other times, you know, we just go on a gut instinct and then we speak to someone and they just tell the most extraordinary story, you know. And, um, we have great plans for this and um, and a lot of hope for it. And I guess it'll just become what it is because, you know, we certainly haven't lassoed it and tried it to try to make it be something, you know, that we want it to be. We've just let it be. Um, and I think some, in some ways that's been its the sort of underlying its success. So you didn't have, you didn't, it didn't have a purpose, so to speak. It just was something you just felt like you needed to be doing. You just pushed, pushed and someone put a captain's bib on you and <laughs> pressed record. <laughs> yeah, something like that. I mean, I, it's, it's funny, you know, I, I mean, this is the first time I've done a podcast series and I'm, I'm a writer, you know, I, 
try and dabble in the other forms of media. Um, but certainly my voice is pretty shaky early on in the series and it's certainly got a lot better thanks to some training from Rob. But, um, you know, it's, um, it, it's been bloody awesome, Danny. Like I, I'm just loving it. Like it's, I can't wait to speak to the next person, you know, although today I was really horrified and nervous about doing this. Um, but, yeah, I'm, um, I'm pretty scary, right? And how are you going with it? Are you okay? Um, oh, look, I've already said more than I wanted to, but, you know. Good. Uh, that's what, uh, I, what I was <laughs> Um, But that's why we've got you here, though, because, I, you know, the chat I had with you, I kind of didn't want it to end because I've said to you on the phone, like, you get it. Like, you get it. Like, and, you know, that's an important thing. When when people are going through trauma, um which I don't feel like I am in this, in this pandemic, which I know is a really weird thing to say. Um, if anyone puts their hand up to help, it feels massive. And I guess, you know, being voices in the industry, although I'd lost my voice in sort of print form, you know, this, we could do it. And so if you can't, you know, I don't know. I just feel like if you can help, then you should, you know, and yeah. Um, so I guess that's just been what's that's kind of what's driven it is just and and you know like Rob's energy is pretty intoxicating like he's he's a good guy I, he, he he never says no like he's just like let's do it okay let's record now okay I can do like he just it's it's almost like there's five Robs and he's always available to do <laughs> like to do it um, and to and to you know Rob's in sorry? Sydney. Rob's in yeah. Sydney, yeah. I haven't actually seen him for like – well, that's a funny thing. Like I'm in Canberra. He's in Sydney. I haven't seen Rob for a couple of months um, and yet we speak, you know, eight times a day. Um, it's, it's bloody weird. I mean, yeah. I think we've got a lot of, a lot of us have got those pandemic <laughs> friends where it's like you're so – you feel so close that you just don't see each other. Um, so when I do an interview, if I know, you know, I'm going to write up an interview, it's like – as I'm asking the questions, I'm sort of hearing the quotes that I'm going to use and I'm looking for a start and a finish and, you know, some sort of through line and that guides me a little bit in how I ask the questions. Can you talk about the different ways that you would interview someone for a written piece and for your podcast? Oh, gee, that's interesting. Wow. Um, well, what, one thing that is very different is that when I interview someone for an article, I probably interject and make comments too much um, because I feel like they've said something and I want to sort of go down that track a bit and it's, it feels very much more interactive. And one thing that I've learned doing this and that and that's thanks to Rob is that the more silent I am as a host, um, often the more someone might reveal to you and – I've had to learn that and it's really hard to bite your tongue um, because you want to jump in. And um, But it, when you do jump in and, and certainly in this format, sometimes you might miss something that they're about to say that could be the best thing that they're going to say. Um, here in this instance, um, you're sort of trying to lead and guide the conversation or steer it, um, but allowing someone to talk. Whereas interviewing for an article, I'm kind of trying to 
find and investigate something. Um, I, I guess I don't know if that makes any sense. but Yeah, yeah, no, it really does. Because I guess with a podcast it's like you're opening up a space and there's a beginning and there's an end and together you fill it, whereas when you're interviewing someone for something that you're going to write later on, it's, yeah, like they're an instrument in this thing that you're going to wrangle and, you know, like we said earlier, it's like you're going to honour them and and, um, and they're going to hopefully feel like you've reflected them fairly, but it's it's very different process. Yeah, it is. And, um, and both of them are equally enjoyable, you know, um, for, for similar reasons. It's just the approach is different. And I guess certainly early on in this series, I was more gung-ho, um, writer, huck, and now I've... I wouldn't say I've learnt to put my put the brakes on a bit, but I'm I'm certainly a bit better than I was at the beginning of the series. Uh, I'm sure you're going to find it hard to single out episodes, but are there any that you want to point to as as particularly surprising or, or conversations that really went in a different direction to to what you expected? Oh, gee, that's hard. Um, I've got something out of every episode. Uh, there are episodes that. I, you know, like it, I liken it to, I think they're all great episodes and I think everyone had some, have something to say, but it's like great albums that have a, there's a moment in your life. And so you remember that album. Um, and whenever you hear that album, it reminds you of that time, you know, and although this has been a four or five, six week period, these podcasts kind of feel like that because the days feel like years. And so it's kind of like moments, but Certainly early on, um, Jared Ingersoll's one made me realise the scale of the impact on the industry and it made me realise um, perhaps what was ahead for this podcast series and the damage that was going to be um, made pretty evident on the industry. Um, you know... <sighs> Certainly, uh, and we've spoken separately about this, certainly your episode had an impact on both Rob and I um, for various reasons. Um, and and that's to do, and that's probably why you're here as well. Um, and I think, you know, like Vicky Wilde was one for me that, um, you know, I know Vicky quite well that I get quite emotional listening to because um, I think she's just, absolutely brilliant and the things she said about restaurants resonate with me and same with um chris morrison um actually um you know that sort of you know i'm not missing food in restaurants and as a food journalist you know in the food media the focus is generally on chefs and food and having restaurants ripped away like that. I, I mean, I'm a pretty handy cook. Um, so I'm not missing the food and not at all, actually. I mean, there's things I would like to go and eat cooked by chefs. I'm missing being in a restaurant. I'm missing the generous hospitality. I'm missing feeling that you know like you've walked in someone's you know front door of their house and they've welcomed you in and given you a hug you know yeah i'm really missing that as well i think um 
at the start when you with the first few episodes or maybe the first couple of weeks and yeah what is time who knows was it 10 years ago but the first few episodes of your podcast it felt like we were all just like in the ocean like the ship had wrecked and we were bobbing around and you were just hoping like as the waves tossed you around you'd see somebody else clinging onto a log like a little way over that's what the first episodes felt like for me where it was just like oh yeah signs of life like people are people are out there they're paddling madly as well and then as it went on, I guess people started to have a little bit more breathing room and and start to think about the future and, and coming out the other side and, and all the massive questions that, that that poses. So you've obviously felt like this is time to call Series 1 to a close. Can you say why you think that and what you think Series 2 is going to feel like? Well, it's a good question. Um, and it's certainly, I guess, season one is kind of the crisis, I guess, in a way. And given the government's announcement of the three stages and, you know, this attempt to open up our society again and and open up the industry, I guess Rob and I saw it as um, certainly not the end of the crisis, that's for sure, um, but a change in it, you know, the change of you know, restaurants who feel that they can open may, um, you know, others, I think we'll see a lot of them hold on and wait for stage three, um, if they can. Um, but I think we just saw it as, okay, this is, this is a chance to sort of not necessarily tell different stories. Cause I think this is just an ongoing, um, crisis that if, you know, is, is, you know, people are starting to look through COVID, you know, certainly you can hear the voices in people through the series change. And as you were saying, you know, they become more um, reflective and insightful and they're, you know, looking looking at the things that were wrong with the industry and then thinking what can they change. And I guess this kind of, this decision by the government, whatever you think of it, you know, as absurd as some of, some of it is, um, it marks a change in what we're going through in the sense that it's allowing the industry to slowly open up. And I guess we saw it as, you know, as a change for us in the series that, okay, the crisis was this and now whatever is going to emerge from it, that's what we need to start um, recording, I guess. Mm. So... Get out your crystal ball then and uh, just tell me about the restaurant landscape. What do you think we're going to see over the next months? <sighs> uh, I won't lie to you. I think it's going to be brutal and I think it's going to be beautiful. I think it's going to be both. I think it's going to be like I can't wait to sit in a restaurant again, you know, with my wife sit at a bar or something, you know, hopefully we can get some babysitters. That'll be nice. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> certainly makes a restaurant experience easier. But having said that they do love dumplings and it's a great family experience. I'm very much looking forward to that again. Um, I think, I think the reality is, is that it's going to be hard for restaurants and the positive to come out of that is that, you know, they're going to have to go back to basics and, you know, I'm not a big fan of, you know, smears, phones and skid marks and, and that whole kind of culinary world, although I do respect it when someone is bloody good at it. 
Um, what I do love is a piece of fish on a plate that's been cooked beautifully or have an amazing salad or, you know, um, you know, sim- you know, great produce cooked simply and an environment where I'm comfortable, you know, where I can wear jeans and a Metallica shirt and know that I'm welcome and, um, you know, and just enjoy the company and the, the feeling of being part of a community and part of a society. And um, I think that what we're going to see from restaurants is going back to that core of, you know, treating each other, you know, like family, of looking after you and um, and just delivering really beautiful, honest food. But having said that, for restaurants to survive in this first period, I think we're going to see some really crazy things happen. You know, I think we're going to see restaurants that have never done a tasting menu before doing tasting menus because they can only put 10 people in the room. And if they're going to open their doors, they need to get revenue in. So, um, and a way to do that is to do a tasting menu. So they know their food costs to the cent. Um, there's no food wastage. They know what the spend is going to be, which will be higher. Um, so I think you're going to see some restaurants doing some really weird stuff that you would never have expected from some restaurants. But as we kind of open up, I think we're going to see some beautiful old school hospitality. All that depends on diners trusting the restaurant environment, Sure that they. I'm sure we are all looking forward to experiencing that hospitality. But diner confidence is going to be such a big part of the way the future rolls out. Where do you see that? Yeah, it's. You know, I was talking to my wife about that yesterday, and it's interesting, isn't it? Like, will people rush out to restaurants? Will they, you know, will they take their time? Will they be nervous about it? You know, and I sort of. I said to her, well, you know, these people are just ignoring the social distancing rules um, throughout this whole process. So, you know, but she said, are they going to be the ones going to restaurants? So, you know, I, and who knows? Like, I, I, it's a really good point. I, I don't know as a society how long it's going to take us to get over the mental scarring of this and not the scarring in the sense that, you know, of, of the, horrific death tolls and all of that sort of stuff, the, the trust in our community that we can engage at a really human level with each other again, that, you know, shake someone's hand when you walk up to them, you know, give them a hug, you know, give them a kiss, hello, that sort of where that is normal again. Um, I don't know when that is. I hope it's soon because I don't mind a good hug. And, um, you know, it's. I, I think I hope that it's soon, and the sooner it happens, um, the better off restaurants are going to be. Yeah, I really hope it's soon as well. Um, but I think we can count on you to guide us through it, to tell us the stories, to find the people, to share those stories with us. So, Huck and Rob, uh, congratulations on an amazing Series 1 of Deep in the Weeds and I cannot wait to hear when Series 2 drops because I think we need you to help us through the next stage. Thank you so much. 
that's just really like he just got me upset. Um, I, and I, look, that's not the first time I got upset during during this conversation. But um, thank you, Danny. And uh, season two is actually going to drop on Monday. Funnily enough, we don't muck around here at Deep in the Weeds. Um, <laughs> but um, hang on, hang on. I'm going to give you back the wheel for a minute. So here it is, <laughs> just passing the wheel to Canberra and you can have your podcast back for a moment. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is this is your episode, but it will start next week and um, we don't know what it's going to be like, um, but we hope that it's um, filled with such hope and joy and honesty that um, these incredible people have delivered so far because, gee, I don't know, I needed it and judging by the response a lot of people have as well. And, um, and bloody thank you, Danny, for doing this. Like, um, yeah, I wasn't sure if you'd say yes, but geez, you know, for someone who's done far more than Rob and I have for the industry in this period, like, um, you're amazing. And we, we are very grateful that, uh, you're signing off the, uh, last episode of season one for us. Um, well, Nate embarrassed me and I, it's, um, I don't think I've done that much, but it's just whatever's come across um, my vision. I think we're all just doing what we can because we all want to be back in restaurants eating that beautiful piece of fish, hugging bloody everyone around us and, um, yeah, clinking glasses. So uh, whether we do that virtually, then let's hope we'll do it soon in person. Thank you for yes. getting deep in the weeds. <laughs> Uh, awesome. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Huck. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Stay safe, isolate and be well. Be well.